Good evening and greetings in Christ's name. Turn with me, if you would, to John. <clears throat> As you can see, I uh, uh, was pushing the envelope a little there and am uh, prone to making mistakes. But that's me. I'll, I'll get, I'll get the uh, things messed up a little bit, but that's okay. I'm human. I just acknowledge it, and uh, we'll go from there. How's that? I've titled the message this evening, The Morning of Joy, and, I, I, and you know, looking at Resurrection, when they were giving me the title, I, I, I love the title, The Resurrection Story. I just love it. Uh, I mean, what other title can you have that's more exciting in the Christian life than The Resurrection? And I think sometimes we, we get so excited about the resurrection, we don't like to dwell too much on the, on the sufferings of Christ. But I've come to the conclusion that we really cannot appreciate the resurrection until we totally understand the suffering and um, the horror of it. And probably some of the things that, uh, that have been going through my mind is, is the fact that you know, we talk about the fact that Christ gave his life, and that's true, he did. But did you ever consider the fact that uh, he refused to give his life before it was time? And I'll go through some of that here in a little bit. Recently I was driving through town, and I normally don't always get my inspirations driving through town, but... I did this time, and, and I was pulling up to the stoplight, and the, and the thought, or the question was pressed on my mind. He said, Mark, how many places did Christ shed his blood? It was the first time I'd ever really thought about it. And I thought, well, Gethsemane. Well, not really, though. And yes, but I'm going to leave that one as it is. Um, it, it, the Bible just says that he sweat as it were drops of blood. It doesn't say it was, but it says as it were. And I'm not here to debate whether it was. If you believe that it was, that's fine. I'm not going to argue that point. But my mind went to three locations. At the judgment, on the way to Calvary, or as some would call it, the Via Dolorosa, which is the path of suffering, or the way of suffering, and then at the cross. And right on the heels of that realization, it just... Um, I wept because I realized that those are the very same places that I need the blood of Jesus Christ in my own heart and life. When I come to Jesus Christ, when I make a commitment, I need his blood to cleanse me from all sin. I also need his blood as I walk in my Christian life, as I walk towards my destination, which is judgment. And then I for sure need his blood at the judgment, don't I? And don't we all? And uh, I'm so grateful for that tonight. <clears throat> I'm going to read uh, John 19 at this time. I'm going to read the, the, the chapter in its entirety. John 19. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail! king of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him, and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, 
We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. And he went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate, <clears throat> Excuse me. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have the power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus saith, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivereth me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from henceforth, and from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was a preparation of the Passover about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto him, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answers, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side, one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where the Jews was crucified was nigh to the city, where Jesus was crucified was nigh unto the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, Greek, and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from top throughout. They said, Therefore among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother, the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, and that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. <clears throat> the Jews, therefore, because it was a preparation that the body should not be remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and the other which was crucified with him. When they, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his leg. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith is true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture they shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. 
And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus, and wound it in linen clothes with spices, as the manner of Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never a man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because the Jews' preparation day for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. It's a familiar passage. We've probably heard it many times. In fact, our Sunday school lesson this morning was on some of that. But the question isn't, this evening, did he suffer enough? That's not the question. You see, there have been people that have probably suffered physically like he did to a degree. But I really don't think we can understand the suffering that he took for us in taking the sins, our sins. The agony of that. You see, Gethsemane was the beginning of that. And I think in our own lives, and especially in mine, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming and guessing that you're probably a lot like me, we, we shy away from, from difficulty and pain if we can. We prefer not to go through the hard things in life. And I think that, that, that battle that Christ fought in the garden is a battle that we all need to face. Not my will, but thine be done. Once we get to that point, I'm not saying the rest of it is going to be easy. Not at all. But when you can trust God, I'll just have to stop here and just tell you a little story because years ago, I, uh, this is not in my notes, so this is just part of it because it comes right down to it. Years ago, I had made a commitment to God, and this is a commitment. Now, if any of you all want an answer to prayer and you, and you don't have a lot of them, here's one that you can pray, and you will get an answer to prayer, okay? I can assure you you will. But I made this prayer, and mostly because I've seen a lot of um, things in my life I didn't really care for, maybe just a little bit of apathy, just a little bit too laid back, coasting along. I didn't like what i seen. And uh, I made, a, con I made a, a commitment to God. I said, Lord, you can take me through whatever you want to take me through to make me what you want me to become. And uh, he did. He took, he took us through a lot of difficulties. Subconsciously, I had withdrawn my commitment. And it was at a revival meeting. And by the way, God's spirit can deal with a person totally independent of what the speaker has to say. I'm a testimony to that. And when the altar call was given, and I'll just have to say, the preacher was about as far away from commitments as you can get and still be in the Bible, okay? That's just all there was to it, okay? And, and God dealt with me there. And I didn't have to ask him, oh, okay, so which commitment is it that you want me to do? Because the Holy Spirit just came into me. He's Mark, you need to renew your commitment. How many of you all know what I'm talking about? When, when God says something, it's always more than what you're hearing, but you know what needs to happen, right? You know what needs to take place. And, and I knew which one it was. The thing that broke my heart 
is that I didn't realize I had withdrawn that commitment. And the thing that was scary was uh, I didn't want to go through any more hard stuff. That's not fun. And I just say that to say this. I, made, I, I responded to it, okay? And I would encourage you to do the same thing. But when I responded, it was like two or three days later, I was going down the road, and curiosity was getting the best of me. I said, okay, God, where's it at? I didn't like the suspense. You know, something's bad's coming. I know something bad's coming. You're going to send something more into my life to kind of mold me and shape me some more because there's more rough edges that need to come off. And I understand that. This, this, this man up here has got rough edges that need to come off, okay? And God has to keep continually work with me. And, but I didn't want that pain. I didn't want the difficulty. It was almost as if God put his arm around me and says, Mark, I wasn't wanting to send anything to you. I just want your commitment. What scared me even worse was the fact that I almost missed it. So the first major suffering that Christ went through was in the Garden of Gethsemane where he said, not my will. Not my will, but thine be done. And the agony of the sin I don't think man can even understand the depth of what that pain was like. I think as a human, if I were to have that kind of load put on me, I would die instantly. But this isn't where Christ was to die. You need to understand, Scripture has to be fulfilled. Christ had to fulfill all prophecy. first verse that we read there in chapter 19 says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. I did a little re research on that, and you're probably aware of, of the scourging. Sounds like there was a leather whip with, with stones and hard things in it. And um, in one description that I read, it was, it was said that your flesh literally got tore off your back. And all the way down to the point where you could see your your organs through your ribs. And that a lot of the, the scourgings that took place, the people never left there alive. Awful. I think sometimes we we can read over those passages and totally miss the awfulness of it. Because the words just simply say they scourged him. It doesn't say how bad. And so we just read over it and it's like, oh, okay. We know what a whipping feels like, so we figure, well, it's probably a little bit like a whipping. No, it was something far worse than just a whipping. Again,
he should probably have died right there. Then it says they plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Trying to show that he's a king. One thorn's bad enough. The pain of what Christ went through just up to this point is astronomical. And then the mockery. We haven't really even tasted what mockery is really like, have we? Have any of us really tasted what mockery is like? To be made fun of to such extent? And yet he was mocked. Put a robe on him. He's a king, look, he's a king. They smote him with his hands, with their hands. I hope you never do this. But don't ever hit your children across the face with your hands. It is very, very damaging. It's what they did to Christ. And it's very demeaning. There's forgiveness for it, don't get me wrong. Sometimes we can do things without thinking, but to do that is what they did with Christ. And I understand there's a, there's a difference there, but the awfulness of just that demeaning thing of hitting somebody across the face. <clears throat> They paraded him around in shame. And when Pilate brought him out in that condition, he didn't give him a proper introduction. He said, Behold the man. He should have said, Behold the Son of God. Christ knew who he was. The creator of the world, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And after all that was done, he had to bear his cross, and he took it halfway. Again, the energy so depleted, so much blood loss, he could go no further. And again, he should have died on the way. He refused to die there because that's not where he was supposed to die. You remember he said, I will be lifted up and I will draw all men to me. I'd like to go forward there just a little bit. We're at uh, 17 there where he's bearing his cross. 
In verse 18, I'm going to read verse 17 and 18 again. But he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. I want to just stop right there. Again, it just says where they crucified him. Can you imagine the pain of having those nails run into your hand? Not just one, both. Not just one foot, both. Where every pound of that hammer brought more excruciating pain. And it just says here, I think it was so awful the writer couldn't express it. He just said, and there they crucified him. His body wouldn't even let him pass out. Like we do sometimes when we hit one of those spots of extreme pain, we can pass out and have the bliss of not being with it. Not for Christ. He felt every moment of it. In one of the other Gospels, he refers to the fact that there was a jar there with myrrh and vinegar. And from what I understand, myrrh was kind of a, an anesthesia. To kind of numb the pain a little bit, he refused it. If anybody deserved it, he did. But he refused it. He took the full blunt blow of that pain head on for myself and for you. And then as he's hanging on the cross, he sees his mom and aunt standing there watching. And I'm sure Mary at this time totally understood the prophecy of, was it either Simeon or where he said, you, it will pierce your soul too. I think Mary totally understood that point now. It was piercing her in a way that it had never pierced her before. But Christ in his, in his compassion And in seeing his mom's need, looked at John and said, Behold your mom. And then he looked at his mom and said, Behold your son. And it says from that point on, John just took care of her. Such a beautiful picture. Christ taking care of the final business of his time on earth as a human. Or carrying that that element of humanity. And then he says, I thirst. I don't know about you, but if you've been very, very, very thirsty, it's torture. And if if anybody of you ever given blood, you get thirsty. You you, you really get thirsty. You want to drink a lot of blood because you've lost, lost liquid. 
So in this brief, brief time here that, I, that, I, that I've spoken, we went through a, a menagerie of different pain, different things, uh, you know, rejection, the, the, the humility, the, it, the emotional, physical, and spiritual pain is intense. I don't know what you're going through tonight or what circumstances you're in. But you know what? We all need our own resurrection. We all need our own resurrection and victory to triumph over the path that God has ordained for us. And the promises that God gives us is that he'll never give us more than what we can bear. But the problem is we don't like to let go and let God. We've got three things that need to happen. And it's a little bit like going through the eye of the needle that Christ talked about. The first one is Gethsemane. It's not my will. It's surrender. It's somebody has it's somebody's will if it ain't mine. We surrender it to Christ. And then it's the dying. We don't like the dying. You see, the resurrection is a lot more exciting than the crucifixion and the death. And are you saying this song, and it always moves me to, to hear this song, and I'm going to read it to you. You'll recognize it, but I just I like to read it because sometimes reading it, you, you really get the, the feel and the gravity for it. But it said, they all walked away, nothing to say. They just lost their dearest friend. All that he said, now he was dead. So this is the way it would end. The dreams they had dreamed were not what they seemed, now that he was dead and gone. The garden, the jail, the hammer, the nail, how could the night be so long? But then came the morning, night turned into day, the stone was rolled away, hope rose with the dawn. Then came the morning, shadows vanished before the sun, death had lost and life had won, for morning had come. The angel, the star, the kings from afar, the wedding, the water, the wine. Now it was done, they'd taken her son, wasted before his time. She knew it was true, she'd watched him die too. But deep in her heart, she knew from the start, somehow her son would live again. Then came the morning, shadows vanished before the sun. Death had lost and life had won, for morning had come. If your storm in life is your grave, then his resurrection is your rainbow in the sky. <clears throat> the world knows very little of this road to glory and the path our Lord forged to victory. But Christ made it clear, if you want to live, you've got to die. If you want to win, you're going to have to lose. And there's a lot of opposites there. I was in town the other day and, and um, came past the railroad track and there were some cars parked there. And this one uh, saying, 
kind of gripped me. This is what it said. We are all lost. I'm just trying to find my way back. There's a lot of people out there in that condition. They don't know where to go to. They don't know where to turn. They're just looking and trying to find their own way back. I would submit to you this evening that there's probably far more that are in that condition than what we care to admit. I've talked to some. In fact, I uh, had a conversation a number of years back with some guys. There's about four of them. And um, we were talking about Bible stuff. They were totally um, strange to the idea of church. I guess that'd be the way to say it. Country boys. And uh, they had asked me at that time, I said, are you a preacher? I said, no. I said, well, how do you know all this stuff? I said, it's in the Bible. And in a lot of our conversations that we were having, I, I said, well, why don't you just go to church? And, and this is really what jarred me. And the one guy pipes up and says, Mark, what do they do there? And I said, basically what we're doing right now, we're discussing the Bible. And he kind of looked at me and says, Mark said, you could probably count on one hand how many of us put together have been in church. This is in the middle of Harrisonburg. And I would venture to guess we've probably got 300 churches within a 25-mile radius. And these fellows never knew what it was like to sit in a church and listen to Bible teaching. You and I don't, you and I, and I say you and I, myself especially, have went to church our whole life. We don't know and understand what that must be like to not have that experience. Christ made a way for everyone even the man that is trying to find his way back. Our Lord has won the victory. He's won the battle. Have you given him yours? You know, the stone closed the tomb. The seal made it legal. The guards kept it safe. But a closed tomb that is sealed and kept by an army are no match for the one who rules the universe. Praise the Lord. And like your own circumstances are no match for the one who created you. There are few confessions that are as powerful as declaring, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. There's a, a writing by, I'd like to read. It's by S.M. Lockridge, I love it. It goes like this. The Bible says he's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Do you know him? David says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. No means of measure can diffuse his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He is enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. 
He's impartially merciful. That's my king. Do you know him? He's God's son. He's the center's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's august. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's a fundamental doctrine in true theology. He's a cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. That's my Jesus. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him today? He's a miracle of the age. He's a superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies the strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and tried. He sympathizes and saves. He guards and guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and beautifies the meek. Do you know him? My king is the key of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway to glory. He's a master of the mighty. He's a captain of conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's a leader of legislators. He's the overseer of overcomers. He's a governor of governors. He's a prince of princes. He's the king of kings. And he's a lord of lords. That's my king. That's my king. My king, his office is manifold. His promises are sure. His life is matchless, his goodness is limitless, his mercy is everlasting, his love never changes, his word is enough, his grace is sufficient, his reach is righteousness, his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable, he's incomprehensible, he's invincible, he's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you the heavens cannot contain him let alone man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find fault with him. The witness couldn't get their testimonies to agree, and Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my Jesus, and that's my king. He always has been, and he always will be. He had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. You can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king. Praise the Lord, that's my king. Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory. The glory is all his. Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever, and forever, and forever. And when you get through with all the forevers, then amen. <laughs>